Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is sponsored by Zengo. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to The Coindesk Podcast Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Hash on Coindesk TV. I'm Jensen Assey. I'm joined by Will Foxley and Adam B. Levine. We got a lot to talk to you about on this Friday, and Adam is just covering my favorite topic, inflation. It's true. It's true. Thanks, Jenny. Good morning. Today, we kick things off with the latest inflation numbers confirming that, yes, things are still getting more expensive at a faster pace than we've really ever seen in our lifetimes for anybody on this show. The Personal Consumption Expenditures, or PCE Index, rose by another 0.3% in September, which is bad but it's being portrayed as reasonably good news by mainstream commentators because professional economists who seem to be professionally wrong this time thought it would be even worse by about 25% than the official statistics show. Of course, if you watch The Hash on the regular, then you've seen me talk about this before, so you know that these official numbers are actually the heavily massaged, sugar-coated versions of reality that seem to always coincidentally make the people in charge look like they're a little bit more competent than they otherwise would. The official numbers today say prices are up 6.2% over the last 12 months, but in real life, a little bit different. So I will just leave you with one question. Uh, have your costs gone up by 6.2% over the last year, or is it a little bit higher? As you ponder that, we'll kick things over to Will for his take. Good morning, Will. Good morning, Adam. Yeah, this story, I was a little surprised, actually, because I didn't think we had inflation numbers yet. But you know, they're the same old, same old, right? We've had 8% plus inflation for the last year, and that has not really changed at all. And I think the important thing is we're going into midterms, right? That's happening here in November, and it's going to determine a lot of things for control in the U.S. and in uh, in regards to like governance for the House and for the Senate. And inflation is top of mind. Who's in charge? Typically, you know, the economy has something to do with that. And I think a lot of people vote with their pocketbook. And so I think we could see some changes there. Uh, Interesting enough, there are some some data sites out there, even some crypto data sites out there that do some sort of market making on on this, showing that a lot of those seats are going to flip because of inflation. Uh, to me, this isn't a huge story for crypto in the sense that, well, it's a dollar story, right? Most Americans are are more concerned about that at this point. The one thing I do want to talk about, I just have some 
thoughts on is like where is where is this inflation going at this point? Uh, in the past, we've seen that energy has been a huge uh, feeder for inflation. A lot of uh, gas prices have gone up. Retail, industrial energy uses have gone up. We've seen, seen that hit the mining sector very hard. We've seen that hit the normal American's pocketbook. So where does this inflation continue to eat into people? Uh, and I'm not quite sure where it goes from here. It might just be the same old. Uh, typically, when we have these breakdowns every month, we get like a little bit more insights into these things. So I didn't see anything in this data. The last thing I want to bring up before I hand it over to Jen is crypto prices. They've been up about 5% on Monday, another 5% on Tuesday. So on the week, we're actually up in a green, which is great. But I don't really know how much that has to do with inflation, right? I don't know if, if it's small little change from expectations from these economists is going to change Bitcoin's price that much. Uh, I'm actually pretty unsure where all these Bitcoin pump mentals come, came from this week as Amazon and a lot of other large stocks fell. Jen, over to you. Well, you actually brought up the the question I had for Adam, you know, is this actually correlated? Is the price of Bitcoin rising to 20 some odd thousand dollars actually correlated to inflation? I don't know if it is like inflation is still really high, although this report says that it didn't rise as much as expected. It's still super high. And as Adam alluded to uh, at the beginning of this segment, Things are costing so much for the everyday person who's out there. You know, when I go to the store, if you go to the malls, I can see that stores aren't getting stock. People aren't spending. Groceries are super expensive. And so, Adam, is the correlation actually there or are there outside factors that are affecting the price of Bitcoin in the story? Yeah, so there's a lot here. Whenever we're talking about any of this stuff, the important thing to really think about here is the narrative. The narrative is sort of what makes sort of the economy and kind of what markets run on. So the economy and reality is supposed to inform the narrative a lot. In practice, in modern markets, it doesn't really do that. There's a bunch of reasons why that's true. One other note is that this is the PCE index. So that's different than the consumer price index or the CPI. We actually did get CPI numbers earlier this month. So this is a subset of that, but it's what's, it's what's referred to in the mainstream media as the Fed or the central bank's uh, preferred uh, measure of inflation, mostly because it measures it at a slightly lower rate uh, than kind of the other ones. You know, when it comes to asset prices, asset prices these days are largely governed by how much liquidity, how much fresh money is sloshing around out there looking for a place to go for yield. When the cost of money is really, really low, then there's very little downside to borrowing lots of money. And especially if you're a big bank, we have this thing called moral hazard where banks have been bailed out in the past for making bad bets. There's no real incentive not to just take that money and then pump it into markets and pump up the price of assets, which then becomes a self-fulfilling cycle. So what happened earlier this year is that the Fed came under so much pressure because the price increases that we have actually seen across all asset classes. If you think about it, when the price of a stock goes up and it's not based on fundamentals, when the price of your house goes up, and your house hasn't actually gotten any better, that's actually that's not an economic activity. That's an activity that is being caused because there's all this money looking for some type of speculative return. And in a market where there's money being pumped into everything, everything goes up. It's only seen as a bad thing when it goes into places where it's really, it hurts people, right? Uh, and again, you can make an argument that housing prices going up, which will now come down significantly as a result of us seeing very quickly going from you know 2.75% you know interest rates for a 30 year mortgage at the beginning of this year up to you know like we're above 7% now uh, that's unprecedented as far as all this stuff goes it means that all of those buyers who were buying with borrowed money now can't afford to be in the market so again there's it's it's a complex situation but what all of it comes down to is that it's the distortions in the market 
because money isn't just money. Money is used for political purposes. I think Will's point about the midterms is 100% right on. This is all political. And it's also important to note, this is not a partisan issue. Both parties in the United States and mostly around the world think that the government should spend more money. And it's the spending of that money that leads us to this problem. So it's not even a political thing about the Democrats or Republicans. It's just the way that the system works right now. But I think that's enough for me so we can move on. All right. Tough times ahead. Zengo Crypto Wallet is an on-chain crypto wallet with no private key vulnerability, leveraging advanced cryptography called MPC, which until now has only been available to multi-billion dollar institutions. Zengo is the most secure Web3 wallet and the best place to keep your digital currency, NFTs, and assets secure. It's also fully recoverable using the wallet's biometric recovery kit. Get started at zengo.com slash hash and use code hash to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Coindesk's Women Who Web 3 podcast, your weekly podcast celebrating women supporting women, investing in women, and bridging the gender gap in wealth through Web 3. Each week, we'll be learning from powerful women, sharing their insights on topics like creating belonging and inclusivity in the digital spaces, the metaverse, building prosperous Web3 projects, investing in cryptocurrencies and building wealth. And we have how-tos from founders and builders who have been there and done that, healing sessions to give you the power to overcome imposter syndrome and everything you need to level up in your crypto journey. At the end of each podcast, stick around for some Zen with a relaxing meditation to center you after absorbing all the stories and the knowledge. I'm your host, Cams, and I'm on a mission to empower women across the globe to unlock the unlimited potential and earning power inside themselves through Web3. Whether you're just crypto curious or a crypto connoisseur, this podcast is for you. Let's get it. Elon has finally bought Twitter, guys. I don't know how the two of you feel about this, but crypto Twitter is super excited. So the deal closed yesterday. And according to a filing with the SEC, he will be taking the company private. It's been a bumpy road getting to this date. There's been a lot of back and forth. There's been a few court filings and a long list of text messages between Musk and some of the world's most recognizable names. Musk has also reportedly fired CEO Parag Agrawal and two other executives. And a little crypto angle on this, Doge pumped on the news. It rose 16% oh. on the deal's completion. You know, that's Elon loves to talk about Doge. He was doing it on SNL about a year ago, and here we are. Adam, I'm going to kick it off to you. What do you make of this? I didn't think we were going to see Elon's deal close so quickly. You know, I, uh, I typically, I'm not a big fan of Elon Musk. And uh, I have found myself increasingly being uh, quite interested in the perspectives of these kind of billionaires who are willing to go against the narrative. As I said in kind of the last segment, the narrative is what drives everything. And Twitter is an enormous part of what drives the narrative. If you look at kind of the way that news used to work, there was never like, hey, let's go to Facebook for what people think on Facebook, right? But that happened with Twitter. CNBC, you know, like a lot of these kind of mainstream channels that are out there really look at Twitter as the kind of driving force. And so over the last number of years, since kind of the beginning of the Trump era, we've seen a lot less diversity of opinion, let's just say that, as an increasingly large swath of, of things and opinions just became unacceptable and wound up getting people kicked off of uh, the platform. 
And so I'm really excited about this because I think that Twitter serves a really important function. I've been on it since 2009 and I haven't used it much because I have opinions that would have gotten me kicked off. And so this kind of, if this opens up that conversation again, I think it's a great thing. And I think that again, like Elon Musk overpaid for it for sure, based on kind of the price that he agreed to during the bull and then what he's actually paying now, uh, you know, is the same price, definitely not a fair price. But I think that, that he just got pissed at, uh, you know, at kind of how, how Twitter, especially the CEO of Twitter kind of was responding to him and was like, all right, well, fine, I'm just going to buy you and then I'm going to fire you. So I think that he just paid $44 billion for the privilege of firing a lot of people. And I, for one, am very supportive of that. Well, what do you think? Yeah, it's a great story to wake up to. Uh, pretty awesome to see that close. And the reason for it being awesome is because I think there is going to be some changes to Twitter that a lot of people are excited for. There's also some hesitancy about it. So we should definitely note that some people worried that there might be more censorship as opposed to less, even though Elon Musk talks a lot about freedom of speech. There are people who are saying hey, he doesn't really have a history with that. If you look at some of Tesla's history with stopping some comments about the machines that Tesla was rolling out, there's definitely a history there. That being said, on the Bitcoin side of things, I think a lot of people are excited, right? Tesla has Bitcoin holdings. Uh, Elon Musk is a well-known Doge pumper. He holds a lot of other coins. I think that that angle is pretty great here. There's also the Binance angle, right? Binance contributed about $500 million worth of financing. They're also standing up an independent team to work with Twitter to look on different integrations for crypto into Twitter. Previously, when Jack Dorsey was at the helm, they did integrate some crypto features here and there. And then once Jack Dorsey left, they also launched the little NFT profile badge, which it kind of did something for a little bit, but it more or less disappeared. I see a lot of them disappear these days. If Elon moves forward with this and moves forward with more engineering changes to Twitter, I could see some crypto adoptions happening or adaptations, I should say. But I think that might be like the biggest thing from a Bitcoin angle. And there's also a lot of Bitcoiners out there with some pretty harsh opinions. So maybe they'll be able to get their accounts back and uh, Bitcoin Twitter will be a little bit more aggressive place. I think that's what we'll probably see going forward. Jen, over to you. Okay. So I was told, I actually don't know what I'm talking about. So the judge told Elon the deal had to close by the 28th. That's today, or they would go to trial next month. So the deal had to close. Well, to your point, I think it's really interesting that Binance provided capital for this deal. You know, Binance also is invested in Forbes. And so it will be interesting to see their role in shaping the narrative around crypto as we move forward. It really seems like they're strategically placing their bets in a lot of mainstream media distribution platforms. And, you know, what they're doing with CBDCs and how they're working with regulators now it will be really, really, really interesting to see how that narrative is shaped with Binance uh, pulling some of the strings. Adam, I'll toss it up to you for final thoughts on this story. Yeah, just echoing the Binance comments, I think it's really interesting when you think about it, but it's totally, totally what you would expect to. Because again, like what happens is these companies get big. We're, we're seeing this with Facebook right now. They get big, they expand, they become, uh, you know, they diversify their kind of investments and their stakes into lots of different projects. And then if they are successful with that, then it doesn't really matter if their core business kind of falls off a cliff. Uh, of course, Facebook does not have that as a situation. Facebook is suffering a lot right now because they basically decided to make a gigantic bet on something that might wind up paying off and they might wind up being rich geniuses. But right now it looks like they might be poor idiots and I can relate to that. So <laughs> back to you, Will. <laughs> okay, this is my gotcha moment. I, I called this one correctly. Earlier this week, we talked about Google's ad revenue numbers, or Alphabet's rather, the parent company of Google. 
and it fell. Why? Well, a little bit was because crypto is off a ledge and they needed that ad revenue. And I said, well, Google's going to take a look at that and going to invest more into the cryptocurrency sector. Seems like they got their act together within three days because they're now unveiling a new node platform that allows you to boot up an Ethereum node, maintain it, and service it over the longevity of that node. Why is this important? Well, Google, Google, for the most part of its history, has not been interested in Web3 projects. They've toyed around with a few different companies, but for the most part, any mention of Google and a Web3 company has been spam or just a blatant lie. It hasn't really been real. But in this case, it's actually true. It's on Google's blog, and we know that they're now working on hosting Ethereum nodes on behalf of other people's. Uh, it's a pretty interesting development. One of the largest internet companies out there now supporting Ethereum nodes. Jen, I want to throw a story over to you, get your take on it to start. Or I guess we're kind of finishing the show here pretty soon. Yeah, well, I stand to be corrected, but I'm pretty sure I saw some data recently that said Alphabet, Google's parent company, is the most heavily invested Web2 company in Web3 startups, which is interesting. I fact check me, people, because I may be wrong on Monday. I'll check on the weekend and come back on Monday if I'm if I'm wrong. I think that this is great for adoption and that trust we talk about in the industry, right? If Google, this brand that has gained all of our trust and some distrust, but you know, Google has been able to, to stand the test of time, is getting into Web3 more heavily. I think it's going to bring the mainstream in. I think Facebook is doing that also kind of in a way, but maybe working against the trust with the, the huge flop in their metaverse play. And so I think that this is good for that. When I think about this story, though, I think like Web3 was made to solve the problems that these Web2 companies like Google and Facebook created. And so it's like a really interesting dichotomy to have these big Web2 giants invest so heavily in the space. And it feels like maybe we're not going to achieve that, that long-term goal that we had. And it's going, we're going to fall somewhere in the middle and we're going to keep replicating history and that is the end of my ramble on this. Adam, maybe you can say something that makes a little bit more sense. The points were there, but, but I got a little bit wobbly at the end. You, you, you did fine, there. Jim. You did fine. That was, that was, I think, great. Yeah, I mean, I think that, again, when you're talking about decentralization in the context of like who gets to run the different parts of the infrastructure, the lack of monopoly is the part that's important. And so certainly, I believe the largest, uh, and again, fact check me if I'm wrong, single sort of provider for full Ethereum nodes is actually Amazon's AWS service. And that presents some challenges, but it also kind of doesn't. Because the thing about it is that to the extent that when you're, when you're looking at validators, right, when you're looking at consensus sort of full node type of stuff, what you're really looking at is people choosing to validate themselves. Now, they can do that on their own hardware. They can also outsource it to a company like, you know, AWS or a company like Google now uh, in order to do that. The thing is, and the thing that's different about Google, you know, and kind of the Web2 era in general is that Google is the only company that runs Google servers, right? Amazon is the only company that runs Amazon servers. Nobody's fact checking them. Nobody is, you know, kind of figuring out like, how do we decentralize this control? And so it's not a question of what do people use today? It's a question of if everything goes as bad as you could possibly imagine it, what would happen? And the answer in that circumstance in Web2 world is that it would stay bad because there's no way to avoid the reality that these companies have monopolies on the operation of their services. Whereas for something like Ethereum, well, sure, people are using it right now because it's a lot more convenient uh, you know, than running it kind of yourself. 
But should things go bad, then you could see that completely change. And it's that lack of lock-in, right? It's the lack of monopoly that is the powerful part because it means when things are good, we use the easy way. And when things are bad, there's an alternative, harder way that will actually still work. And so again, like I see this as the, you know, another kind of step along the road to boring where it just becomes a, a kind of, uh, you know, like normal part of our lives, a normal service that these big companies provide. Effectively, you know, if we're doing it right, these companies are like the electric company, right? Like they're not telling you what to do. They're not telling you what to think. They're not approving things that you say or want to do. Like they're just providing the service and it's super straightforward. Will? Well, I'll give it to Jen first and then I'm going to take a shot back at what you have to say. But Jen? Yeah, we didn't have to wait until Monday for me to get fact checked. So the report said that Alphabet is the world's top blockchain-friendly investor pumping $1.5 billion into the sector, but not Web3 specifically. Will, off to you. Now, the one thing I want to rebuttal on what Adam was saying is it's not quite clear if these platforms are going to be neutral. And Google and Amazon definitely have stakeholders that are US-bound. And you know, from time to time, they also get called up in the Congress and they have to testify before a few senators or members of the House, right? And so they are beholden to higher powers. And that makes you think about, well, can these platforms be neutral? And they're supposed to move money around the world for different parties, including parties that the US government does not like. We look at OFAC sanctions right now that hit Tornado Cash. We're seeing that change how Ethereum settles transactions right now. A lot of blocks are not including anything with an OFAC address. And if more Ethereum nodes are built on top of Google, then we could see more and more of Ethereum become a censorship chain as opposed to a censorship resistant chain. Yes, it's possible for a lot of these nodes to work around that or for the network to work around this with the validators, but it becomes increasingly more difficult the more you have Google, AWS, and others providing these services. Why? Because they're US-based and they're beholden to US laws. And if you have the majority of the nodes and you start influencing the rule set a little bit, well, you have yourself something a little bit different than what most people intended Ethereum to be. Adam, we'll throw it back over to you. Yeah, just real quickly. Uh, so you're completely right. But the, the kind of counterpoint to that is that nobody takes the hard path because they want to take the hard path. They take the hard path because adversity and reality forces them to recognize that the easy path is counterproductive. That hasn't happened yet. We haven't seen a big pushback against any of this stuff. We've seen little inklings around it. And I think that every time we do, it pushes more people towards taking that harder path because it emphasizes the importance of this thing to the extent that it is, in fact, important to them. And the number of people who are aware of it and who think it's important is growing and growing and growing with every year that passes by at an exponential rate. So I completely agree with, the, with you. But I think that in an adverse scenario, the difference is that that path, the hard path, would be taken. And even if there was over here, here's Google, you know, Amazon, Ethereum, right, where everything's censored. And over here is a fork where, you know, it's like people just running full nodes because they realize that that other one doesn't really work anymore. I really wonder where the value would wind up going in the long term. And I think that it's not uh, a solved thing at this point. So I, I still think it's a good thing. But your perspective is very valid, too. And I think that's it for us today. We can ponder that over the weekend. It's Friday. Thank you, everyone, for watching The Hash on Coindesk TV and for listening to us on the Coindesk Podcast Network. A lot of great podcasts over there. So go on and check it out over the weekend while you're doing your chores. We are going to take a two-day break. Lots of news is going to happen. And we are going to be back right here, same time, same place on Monday to talk about it. I'm Jen Sinassi. We got Will Foxley over there. And you can't see me because we're in the three box. And Adam B. Levine on the other <laughs> side of me. Have a great weekend, everyone. We'll see you on Monday.
You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. 